As a young boy, my classmates told me that my hair was black. But my hair is dark, dark brown. I know this because Tyler knows this. But also because when the light shines on it, the sheen is dark, dark brown and not black. Hi everybody, I'm Jeremy Allman, host of the podcast Abstract, Cold in the Future of Science, that you are listening to right now. We're making graduate research unprecedentedly accessible, one episode at a time. You recorded these episodes in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're talking about the future of science. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's episode of, you guessed it, Abstract. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So, what is the degrowth movement, and how can we propagate it? How can we continue to make progress while simultaneously reducing our level of growth? What does a degrowth future look like, and what would we need to give up in order to get there? Where did the movement begin, and who should be getting involved? Who are the proponents of the degrowth movement? And at what level do they operate in society? We're going to be answering questions like these on today's episode of Abstract. So buckle those seatbelts, get your bag of popcorn, chew quietly, let's go. Alex Pedham is a master's student in political science at the University of Montreal. He's currently researching the Montreal degrowth movement and situating it within a growing academic conversation. He's zeroing in on a critical question. Can we continue to grow on a finite planet? Rooted in social movement theory, his interests have brought him to study an emergent counter-narrative to sustainable development, called degrowth. To its advocates, growth is the real villain here. Guilty, yes, for the climate crisis, but equally for an innumerable list of daily injustices. Leaning on his background in anthropology, Alex's fieldwork brought him to interview local degrowth activists with the goal of isolating and defining those degrowth networks specific to Montreal. Once complete, this network analysis will allow him to insert the Montreal wing into a growing activist literature that just might prove to be the most important blueprint for humanity. To pay the rent, Alex works as program manager at a non-profit called Youth for Youth Quebec. In his other life, you can catch Alex writing stories, bike tripping, and wine making. It is an absolute pleasure to have Alex Pedham on the show today. So without further ado, here he is. Alex, welcome to the show. How's it going? Thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. It's great to be here. This is the most exciting part of my day, as I've mentioned before. Extremely exciting. Listeners, you should know right off the bat, me and Alex, we go way back. So get ready for a super juicy, jazzy, engaging, interesting, informative discussion between Alex and and myself. Not setting the bar too high, but you know what to expect on Abstract at this point. Alex, I'm going to start us off by just jumping right into it and just being 100% honest. If it wasn't for you, I don't think I would have ever heard of the degrowth movement. What is it and why haven't I really heard about it yet? Sure. Those are perfectly valid questions. I've only heard about it recently myself. I took a course in it last semester, just before everything kind of fell apart. I'll start with the definition of it, which in some sense might be the hardest question to answer in the entire segment, because I think there's a lot of different takes on it. There's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of bad faith in trying to misunderstand it. Degrowth is a wholesale transformation of society. It's calling for changing everything from the ground up, 
uh, every which aspect to ultimately reduce society's throughput. And here the villain is growth, as you mentioned so well in the introduction. Growth is the root of all problems. Growth causes environmental degradation. We've seen it with the resource exploitation. We see social injustice. For example, all the money that's been accruing as of resource development tends to go to the top 1%. The global north profits the most from it at a global systems perspective. And finally, growth alienates us from one another. So say we become cogs in the machine where we focus mostly on the production as opposed to just creative labor, and that becomes just secondary. Ultimately, growth has achieved what some would refer to as a hegemonic status in how we view things ever since capitalism has really become the way of both the West and the world. And the goal ultimately is to do what one of the degrowth philosophers named Serge Latouche, a French philosopher, says to decolonize our imaginations. So the idea is to politicize growth, reject it, and understand that ultimately growth is not something that's innate to the human experience. It's just one Western model that's been used the world over that we can and should get rid of. So why have you not heard about this? I'm sure there's a few explanations to this. One is that it's not popular because at the moment, finally, there's been action done on the question of global warming. We're starting to see a phase towards renewable energy at scale. We're starting to see the popularization of electric vehicles. So things seem to be actually moving in a good direction for once. We've seen the election of Joe Biden and the Democrats in the States. So suddenly you hear this whole idea that that, you know, growth is bad and, and you know, both renewable and non-renewable. It ultimately, to the degrowth advocate, it's, it's one and the same. You know, renewable energy might be better, but you still need to use massive amounts of land, massive amounts of minerals to, to create the, the solar panels, the wind turbines. So to them, you just can't keep growing on a finite planet. There's so much that we could have a, a whole podcast, I think, just about degrowth based on that introductory statement. Thank you. It's like a, it feels like a commencement address to degrowth. I, I feel like you've just done it tremendous justice. There was one thing that, that did really stick out, which it almost sounded like a tagline, decolonize our imaginations. And you also spoke about how growth is not innately human. It isn't an innate part of our humanity. But... I want to kind of push back on that a little bit because I, when I when I agreed to actually have you on the show and talk about degrowth, I was really excited because I didn't know it very well. And just on the surface, it felt like something that I fundamentally disagreed with. And I wasn't sure if that was just my capitalistic mentality or something else. To me, our ability to grow is something so magical and so sacred that the idea of even using a label like degrowth to describe what we should be doing as a global or even a local society, to me, sounds completely regressive. Although the way that you're framing it here makes it sound like it's the most progressive thing since sliced bread. How do we reconcile this? How can you convince me otherwise that degrowth actually somehow is progressive? Those are really good questions. And they're the questions that face the degrowth movement as well. Even even the word itself, degrowth, has this is this uncomfortable connotation, yeah. right? That that understandably you picked up on and ran with, and as you should, it's something that that the movement has to contend with, right? So there's a few ways that I could try to answer this. Okay. Many degrowth activists and academics focus on the economic aspect of growth or degrowth. Some think of it more broadly in terms of the notions of progress and the zeitgeist in that direction, taken more sociologically. 
So this term zeitgeist is going to come up a couple more times throughout the episode. I just want to make sure that it's clear. It essentially refers to the mood or the conversation of our time. But let's just focus on economics for a second, because I think that's what ties most of the thinkers together. So I think a concrete example could be instead of having a private business, say, for example, where the, the model is profit, the model is growth, you can think of the idea of a worker cooperative, for example, which that you know, in the solidarity economy, you still need to make enough money to, you know, feed yourself, feed your kids, buy the clothes on your back. But the idea is ultimately you're not driven by the profit. Instead, you're driven by thinking about what it is that you need to get by and thinking about working in a climate that is sustainable. So it's not that you're opposed to the concept of growth from a humanist perspective, I guess you could say. If anything, this is just the logical continuation of a more humanist take on how we should live in the world. It's the idea somewhat similar to the movement for voluntary simplicity. The idea is more so to live within your means. And that would be another way to reframe the concept of anti-growth. I think a better way of calling it as opposed to degrowth, remember it's a translation from French, décroissance. I think Mm. in English, something that would be better, and I'm not the first to say this, would maybe be a growth, mm-hmm. right? Like the so Latin prefix not. <laughs> sure, yeah. similar, absolutely a similar word, but I think yeah. it's, it hammers home a slightly more accurate point uh-huh. in, in that it's reducing society's throughput to a degree which is sustainable in a finite world. It's not that you're opposed to the concept of growth writ large. So from what I'm hearing... Degrowth isn't actually about doing what it sounds like it's doing. Degrowth sounds like you're talking about reversing growth, which I think is where my misinterpretation came in. Degrowth is about thinking differently about what we want to be growing, as opposed to profit, right? Like, because you're saying it isn't profit, right? So we're not going profit, we're growing, like, I don't know, are we growing emotionally? <laughs> are we growing, you know, in terms of our, our musculature? And are we growing in terms of like the social bonds that we create? You know what I mean? Because there, there are different ways to grow as a person. I, you know, there's professional development, self-development, all these kinds of things. That's growth, sure. but just not in terms of a capitalistic mentality. Yeah, you could think of it more as, a, as say, a steady state economy. That's Herman Daly that, that first talked about that. The idea of a stable output where you're not putting in more than is required to take out. And the idea that you are just living within the biophysical limits of the earth that we happen to be stuck on, right? Is that even possible based on the way that like all modern, I guess you could call them maybe first world societies operate? Like thinking about the way that, that a city operates. I, I, <laughs> right now, is degrowth like just completely theoretical? Or is there like, do people actually think this is possible? At the moment, I could speak more to the Montreal degrowth chapter's experiences. Sure. And the lead thinker, I guess you could call him, his name's Yves-Marie Abraham. I took yeah. his course last year. Okay. He sees the solutions in what he calls the commons. So he's inspired by Eleanor Ostrom, um, some of her work, the idea of these sort of self-managed collectives that members share in the means of production. So there's a sort of socialist overtone, I guess you could say, but the idea is where the profit model is eschewed, it's, it's kicked out. And so think of, there's a spot, uh, I live in Point St. Charles, there's a spot called Batsimont Set, where what they do, it's, it's run as a cooperative, they don't focus on the profit, and instead they 
they have a, a brewery, they have a restaurant, they have a bar. There's the Milton Park Housing Collective. And there's something, I think it's in Villeray called La Remise, where you, you just bring back your old tools, you have them fixed, you share your tools, et cetera, et cetera. So those are probably the most concrete examples I could think of in Montreal at the moment. But to answer your sort of broader question, it really is theoretical at this point. I, I, so far, there's next to no examples that I could give you that you could say without a doubt constitute a sort of degrowth model, a post-growth world, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and I think to expand on that, degrowth, which I think it falls prey to what a lot of theories have, is that they show you what's wrong with things and they come up short with what to prescribe. But I think what's interesting about this sort of movement is that it's it's really rooted in a, in a democratic worldview and it's really rooted in trying to genuinely change people's opinions. You know, there's no dictatorship of the proletariat here. We're, we're really trying to have a meeting of minds. So the idea, like Serge Latouche said originally, we want to decolonize our minds. We want to take the red pill. So ultimately, we just want to take what's in front of us and then really question it, problematize it together as a society and realize, hey, we have to change stuff. We might not know what it is, but instead of talking about sort of superfluous nonsense, we're now talking about the real stuff, right? It almost sounds like the issue here is that we've lost sight of what's actually in front of us. Sure. You know, I, I don't even know how to even put this concretely, but whether it's information we're being fed from any sort of media, whether it's the fact that we actually live in cities that disconnect us entirely from nature with a big N, with a capital N, it almost feels like before we can even implement whatever frameworks degrowth has waiting for us, we need to undo a whole lot more. Is this idea of, of undoing what we've already done fundamental to degrowth? And I, I know that might sound a, a bit vague, but in, in terms of the way that we've, we've set up modern capitalist society, like you said, it's, it's built for growth, it's built for profit. Is there a list of, of things that we have to kind of undo, whether it's action steps, infrastructure, that, that we need to literally eliminate in order to actually begin to start with degrowth? Or can degrowth actually begin right now? That's a really interesting question. There's so many different takes on how, how this can be done. So far, I'll take the Montreal example again, the one I know best. It's not a social movement in the most immediate sense where you see demands nailed on the doors of the government offices and it's, there's, there's no mass movement as such. It's more about influencing and radicalizing the climate debate at its margins. So taking those conversations that are already being held and then moving them a bit more in the direction towards degrowth. And then to answer your question a bit more specifically, by changing the parameters of the conversation, right, they're starting to input certain ideas, like say, for example, reduce the work week. That could be a concrete way of undoing some sort of the things that have been done under capitalism. So say five to four, five to three days, or say fighting programmed obsolescence. So the, the model that we're just so used to in our technology, right, I have my phone here, it's half broken, half dead, I'm a year in. So instead of focusing on fixing and sharing objects, a more circular style economy, then you prioritize more sort of local, low-tech energy infrastructure. And then you, at that point, you start reimagining com completely how we, how we live, you know, say force, um, I don't know, force is maybe the wrong word to use, but have us live closer to our places of work, reduce transport, maybe prioritize biking. So see, I'm sort of scatter scatterbrained yeah. here. I'm, I'm I'm throwing all these the, these ideas and seeing what sticks. But I think I'm sort of the mouthpiece for the literature at the moment, where it's right. again the 
I don't want to call it a cop-out because I think there's something to it, but they really are pushing for the idea that they don't want this to be another one of those movements where you're, you know, you're waiting for the march on the Capitol, but it's maybe a poor choice of words, but it's more so um, you really want it to be a, a, a bottoms up sort of thing where we, we kind of throw ideas at you and those are some of them. And, yeah. and the hope at least is that you have a, you know, a, a populace that knows by and large, I don't even know how to frame this. I was going to say knows what's what's right for them, but then I'm falling back into the traps of those those sort of uh, left wing sort of fever dreams. But do we even know what's right for us? Right? It, it almost seems like the degrowth movement is in part trying to tell us that we've got it kind of backwards. Well, one interesting thing too I've noticed, and I'm I'm sort of editorializing here, but a lot of it's disillusioned uh, lefties, a lot of old time socialists that I think that have fallen out of love with the idea of you know, like telling the people what it is they need to know and sort of expanding their mind, popular education, but realizing that there are flaws to that approach, quite obviously, and that they're starting to try to come to terms with a more mature movement, not mature in that its ideas are necessarily better or worse, but one that kind of takes the world more at face value. Right? Hence not banging pots and pans in the street. No comment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, so, okay, so, so we're going to do something a little different today. For the next 30 seconds, I want to introduce a quick meditation session. Whatever you're doing, tune into the sounds around you and the cadence of your breath. feeling energized let's keep going <laughs> okay uh so okay so so who are these local degrowth activists that you've been interviewing for example you don't need to give names but where does this activism exist is it at the individual level the organization the corporation government like where are we at right now nowhere near government that's for sure yeah. uh, I, I think the highest the two most visible aspects of the movement right now one is a class at the uh, ASHOSA, the business school at the University of Montreal. They have the first course taught on degrowth in North America. It was in 2013 when they first started teaching it, uh, taught by Yves Marie, again, the sort of leading academic in the field in uh, Montreal. And then there's uh, Polemos, which is this 2020 founded nonprofit that uh, really just tries to advance the conversation is mostly academics that publish papers, host conferences, and sort of just do the circuit and get the get the ideas circulated. It first emerged in Quebec in around 2007, 2008, through the voluntary simplicity movement, which I'd mentioned, I think, earlier, the idea of just a living more sustainably, living within our means. So it's already quite a bit in common. So Serge Mangeau, he was one of the leading figures of that group. He got maybe 20, 30 or so of his colleagues together, and they made a manifesto and then got it started, the Mouvement de la Décroissance in 2007. Okay. And then from there, they've never had a massive following, but again, like I've mentioned, they're really trying to influence the debate on the margins. And Serge Mangeau's really passed the torch to Yves-Marie Abraham, who's written a book that came out, I guess, about two or so years ago now, called Guérir du mal de l'infini. Um, <laughs> translating that on the fly would be something along the lines of, you know, healing oneself from the, the ails of the infinite. 
Um, <laughs> That's a nice bathroom read. <laughs> right? Good lockdown read, at the very least. For sure. And that's, I mean, I'm editorializing again, but it's to some extent become the Bible of the, the degrowth movement here in Montreal. Sure. You can find a lot of the, the tenets for a movement that's so scattered in, in its prescriptions and its views of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of become a, an incontournable for those around here. So it sounds like this really was kind of developed in a French community. Is this big in France right now? You said you're focusing on the Montreal chapter. Is this a France-born movement or Quebec? Ooh, super interesting question. You could argue it's started many places, but I think most would say it began in France around 2002, 2003. But that discounts all of the past sort of forefathers, foremothers of the movement. I could even go into a sort of quick maybe rundown. This is something I've been having to do for my literature review of the movement. Okay, let's get a quick rundown of that movement then. Like you're talking about a little timeline of its development? Yeah, exactly. Let's Just a, yeah. a general sense. Yeah. I mean, sometime in the early 70s, I think 1972, the, the Club of Rome, there's this sort of uh, UN politician, scientist-based organization released this report called Limits to Growth, which really just got the conversation going saying, look, economic growth is biophysically limited. And they talk about the ideas of entropy and that we have to address this at some point. This was around the same time that bioeconomics became a field. Never popular, but that's when it kind of got the ball rolling. So a a select few philosophers and some sort of eccentric economists really got wrapped up into the idea. So it kind of remained in the shadows for 10, 20 years at that point. It got somewhat sidelined again by the emergence of the, the whole sustainable development argument. That kind of took the oxygen out of this movement. But then come late 90s when Serge Latouche, the French philosopher, starts talking about decolonizing our minds. And then in the early 2000s, there was this sort of perfect confluence of the uh, voluntary simplicity movement, uh, protests for green movements that were calling to rid the streets of Paris that are so polluted, rid them of cars, right? So then he spoke at a conference and that just sort of lit a fuse. People, you know, the people woke up like, oh, that's it. That's the degrowth. That's the word for it. So then come 2008, they brought together the first international conference on it and then 08 onwards, it started to proliferate in almost every Western, Eastern European country. Quebec's one of the few in North America. It is primarily a Western movement, a rich industrialized country's movement, which is interesting in itself. It's There's been efforts to link it up with Latin American Buen Vivir movements, those sort of similar environmental movements in the global South. And there is something to be said for that going forward and moving, but it still has a fairly Latin base. It's it's big in Quebec, big in Spain, Portugal, France, and in the margins in the US. They have some famous uh, thinkers there, but it's it for some reason there's something Latin about it. I have trouble explaining what that's about. Do you think if the US gets behind this that's going to like shoot this to the top of the newspapers and like get this on the front page? Well, they had an article in the New Yorker I read about a year or two ago, so it's definitely like it's it's seeping oh. into the margins here, right? But it's not; it hasn't quite reached that status yet. I think they're really focusing on, uh, you know, the Green New Deal is taking up the oxygen. I think that this movement generally would in uh, in other countries. Fascinating. So we're already fifty years deep, kind of. If you go to the seed that was first sown with this movement, or at least the the infancy, fifty years. It's incredible how. On, I guess, I don't know what you want to call this, uh, activism time scales, as opposed to, you know, geological time scales, evolutionary time scales, how long it takes for, 
for certain movements to actually propagate. And clearly, we're still at the beginning of something very, very interesting. You said, this is like way back in the introduction, that degrowth is, is rooted in social movement theory. We haven't really spoken about that much yet. I'd, I'd like to maybe you know, open up the discussion to see what the roots are in social movement theory. What is that? Sure. Well, there's a lot of different ways to define a social movement. I chose, his name's Mario Diani. He's kind of one of the, the OG definers in the discipline. He, he sees it as their networks of informal interactions between, say, a plurality of individuals. Getting super academic, but I think it's worth harping on the words here. So individuals, groups, organizations, but those that are engaged in political or cultural conflicts, but that at the root of all of it, they share a basic collective identity, right? That's the one I chose to go with to analyze the Montreal scene, because I'm plotting it with this instrument called UCNet, where the idea is you plug in all these different organizations, groups, and then you get to see on a, on a graph where the sort of points of influence are, what types of nodes are formed. So it's a way really to just put it concretely up there as a good case study for future you know, researchers to work with. I chose social movements. I could have gone with other versions of, of approaching it. New social movement theory has been pretty popular since the 1980s. The idea that 1960s onwards, social movements have been less based in economics and more about uh, identities. So the gay rights movement, more conventional mainstream environmental movements would tend to be considered as new social movement. But degrowth is also seen as, you know, like an academic thing. It's seen as, as, as a new zeitgeist, as something similar to, you know, the modern era after the French Revolution, but say the next era after the modern era, right? So it's, it's super hard to pin down what exactly it is. And, you know, it's, it's after 50 years, like you pointed out, it's still sort of nebulous. Like that's, that's why I'm here, you know? Do you think that the academic nature of it is actually stifling its growth? Nice. I'm not sure you could go and speak to a working class group that's not sort of steeped in the literature and think that they would catch on. And I realize how condescending that sounds. I mean it in the least condescending way possible because that would be the, the goal ultimately. But it's really rooted, and especially in the Montreal scene, I think in most just writ large, in the universities. It, it, it's, it's a very academic field. And I've heard arguments that that's a better case for it. I've heard arguments that's worse for the obvious reasons you're not going to get the masses on your side for it. I don't know We're if they're the waiting. For the future. Yeah. Right? I mean, what is this podcast? I'm interviewing students in university, and I call the show The Future of Science. This is not by accident. I didn't just change the title for today's episode. Again, I, I did ask whether you thought that you know the entire movement was stifled by academics because we can't let things just sit in academia. Again, hence the reason for this podcast. Sorry to cut you off there. No, that, that's okay. I've noticed a tendency that I think most social movements have to coalesce around a charismatic figure. That's often given a negative connotation, but I'm not sure that's necessary. You can have really, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. is a perfect example of that, a charismatic figure that brought a movement, you know, really to the fore. I've noticed that, again, in Quebec, Yves-Marie Abraham really cuts that. He's handsome he's he's well spoken he can really synthesize it better than i can i'm glad you have me on the podcast <laughs> not him but maybe something like that's required to sort of break down these ideas into simple bite-sized pieces and and not even to non-academics but people that don't have any interest in degrowth you know who don't have to take a course on it could then tune into radio canada and hear two cents on and then you know go go check out batsman set go check out examples of the commons and sort of get more uh, first-hand understanding of what it could be, you know? 
what can what can listeners like myself and those who are listening right now actually do like tomorrow to start sure. contributing to the to the growth of the degrowth movement nice the first thing and the easiest thing you could do if you have access to the internet is just to go to the facebook group uh, decroissance conviviale like okay. we said earlier it's primarily a francophone movement uh-huh. which I, that itself could be addressed if you want to get the english speaking community of montreal involved Okay, I'll put a link to that for sure in the description. Sure. I'd mentioned earlier some of these commons that practice degrowth values. So Batsimaset, the Milton Park housing co-op, there's the, the Remise. All of those are referenced to some capacity in the Facebook group. So from there, you can kind of get a general sense. And the uh, Mouvement Québécois pour la décroissance conviviale, the MQDC, the group that was formed in 2007, they still have a website even if they're not officially running anymore. They had an old journal that they used to publish so you could access some of the earlier literature that was produced over the last 10, 10 odd years or so, all in French. But again, can give you a really good sense of when it was really a underground new movement, so to speak, to the Quebec scene. I think that could get you at least somewhere interesting. Sure, absolutely. So now that we've actually kind of spoken about how the, the young folks like ourselves can, can get involved, many of us, many of the listeners right now have parents, maybe even grandparents, you know, they, they are voters who have somebody in power in the riding in, in their neighborhood. How can we maybe begin to start getting the attention uh, or at least maybe kind of sell the idea of degrowth to older generations, especially those of whom are in positions of power and maybe whose entire worldview is centered on just unfettered growth. Yeah, good point. I mean, you mentioned political parties. There are no political parties that preach degrowth as such. I mean, at the provincial level, there's Quebec Solidaire. I don't know if it's still active, but they had an internal collective that was devoted to the ideas of degrowth. So at least that party was receptive to some degree to the conversation being had Mm -hmm. amongst their ranks. It's really conversationally based. Every other week there's a conference and especially now they're all online, right? So every other week you can tune into something, hear someone talk about it. All those links are always going to be shared in the Facebook group. So it's really a bouche à oreille, as they say, where it's, it's, it's really just influencing the conversation on the margins. I don't know to what extent that's intentional. That's how they framed their approach at the moment. I don't know if just because they don't have mass support and this is how they've had to do it, but... I think it's an interesting way to advance the movement through no artifice, nothing that will get you instinctively mad or turned off the idea, as much as the word itself can be incendiary. There's nothing radical in having the conversation about it. And I think that that's maybe one of its biggest strengths. Yeah, that was really well put, actually. Like everything that comes out of your mouth. Um, (laughs) So, okay, maybe we'll just take a quick left turn here. How can we ensure that this movement is developed and then, I guess, practiced evenly across different social classes and different communities? You know, I understand that you're focusing on the, on the Montreal chapter. Montreal is, you know, a metropolitan city in Canada and we have certain demographics. But is this a movement that you think could catch on globally in, in all different kinds of regions across all different social classes? Well, in 2008, when they had their first conference in Paris, again, rooting it in France, they tried to get a common definition of what degrowth was. And that's where they really stressed the idea that had appeared quite often already, but that this was dedicated and devoted towards the wealthy nations, the global north. 
and not because the global south doesn't grow but because a lot of the blame comes from the global north countries that have really gotten industrialization started the whole conversation to be had on the the good and the bad of that but it is ultimately largely a global north problem so it's really meant to target those countries first and foremost to to get to a steady state economy in say the european powers the the north american powers japan etc but it's rooted in, in, in a democratic approach, like I was saying. So the idea is that we want to have popular support for it and not impose it. But to some degree, this has to be done everywhere at once simultaneously <laughs> or else there's no point. You'll, you'll lose your competitive edge. It just wouldn't make sense. It's like the first mover paradox or something like that. Where like nobody wants to go first. Sure. That sounds like something in, in international relations theory, but I've yet to come across a good convincing explanation as to how this could come about. And I think that, again, they're not trying to come to, to terms with a theoret or a, a practical explanation. They're really focusing on changing the zeitgeist. And the idea is once you change the zeitgeist, everything else falls into place, which is an argument in itself. But the idea that, say, the gay marriage debates that were so virulent in the U.S. ultimately come 2015, once it passed in the Supreme Court decision, not that it wasn't entirely met with, with praise, but it had come to such a point, if you looked at popular opinion over the past 10, 15 years, Republican, Democrat, Independent, it just coalesced to a point at which it almost became uncontroversial. I choose gay marriage as an example amongst many, but the idea is that if you follow that sort of approach, you don't have to worry about the specifics because it just becomes something that's common. Like uh, I, I, people put their pronouns in their bios and their emails, and it seems to those that haven't been sort of ear to the ground part of this movement, everyone's just sort of doing it on their Zoom screens or wherever. It follows that approach, I think. And I think it's banking on that sort of way to sort of quote unquote attain power. Yeah, we're trying to kind of slow, slowly come up behind everybody right. in the nicest way possible, right? <laughs> right? In a non-creepy, non-terrible way. You should write my thesis for me. Quote, non-creepy, non-terrible. That's my, that's my best, for sure. <laughs> okay. I think I, I just have one more question before, before I come to my final question. I mean, we'll see where this one takes us, but we're, we're definitely nearing the end of today's episode. Degrowth, obviously, if, if, from the beginning of today's episode, it totally struck me as something quite radical, even though the idea in terms of disseminating it, as you've said, is actually a, a very calm, it's an academic approach, right? Word of mouth. Ultimately, is, is degrowth like a permanent shift in, I guess, how the global north operates, to use your, your verbiage? Or is it implied that at some point in time we'll be able to reach a point where we can resume like the, the current 2021 level of growth? Well, the idea is that degrowth is inevitable. We're eventually going to hit our biophysical limits, so we better make it voluntary. Right? Okay. Yeah. Are you threatening me, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's oh. how I can sum it up best. You know, it's you have to get there before it gets to us first, right? <laughs> okay. That's yeah, that's that's a very succinct, very, very powerful answer. Yeah, thank you. Of course. I guess that brings me to my final question. Wow, th this has been a very unique, very interesting episode. I'm including this episode among all of the maybe more hard science discussions because Political science is a science, so named. And I think this is going to spice things up a little bit. And I know I've definitely enjoyed this twisty, turny discussion of things like social movement theory. So, final question. 
You're standing at the foot of an auditorium. It's a, it's a huge, huge auditorium, like a thousand-seater, packed to the brim. All eyes on you. What do you tell the audience? Can't keep growing on a finite planet. So what's your plan? And then you drop the mic. And I just drop the mic. I think that's red-pilling them. And that's what it is that has to get the, the, the creative juices flowing. I think that's all you need to do. I think that's the best they've got as a movement. It's just a complete paradigm shift. And then from there, they join the conversation. And then they come up with better ideas than I've ever come up with. You know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just researching it. I'm not, I'm not leading the movement here. Mm-hmm. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Wow. Awesome. Another powerful, powerful statement, powerful sentiment. I appreciate everything that you do, Alex. You're just a, a wonderful force of nature and of knowledge. And so thank you so much for being on the show today and, and sharing all of that with us. Just an endless repository of information you are. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. I could say all the same stuff about you as well. Thanks for having me again, eh? Take it easy. No problem. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at AbstractCast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.